Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. Passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Sandra Hills, who is the CEO of Benitas, who are a leading not-for-profit organisation with a mission to provide older Victorians, their families and carers with a full range of quality community-based services, residential homes and apartments. Sandra joined Benitas in 2009 with a career experience in health, business management and public policy. And under her leadership, Benitas has diversified services to meet new and future demand with a specific focus on innovation, research, workforce development and sustainable fiscal growth. Sandra's also held senior roles at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and Whitehorse City Council. We start the interview off by looking back at when Sandra was first in a leadership role and the challenges associated with this. We speak a lot about the really challenging working environment Sandra has worked in. We also take some time to discuss succession planning and how she goes about building the capability of her executive team. And we finish the interview by talking about economic and societal challenges that are on the horizon. So keep listening, and as always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Sandra Hills, CEO of Benitas. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor, and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Sandra, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are and what you do. Can you give a bit of an insight? Okay, it's great to be here. Benitas is an, is an organisation that's 71 years young. We're an, a provider of aged care, uh, but recently we've also um, put our toe in the water in the area of primary care as well as NDIS. We provide services to around um, 7,000 people and we only operate in Victoria. We are part of the Anglicare Australia group, so we're actually independent, but we're actually part of that family. And we provide residential aged care. We provide home-based care, including nursing. We provide retirement living services, primary care, respite services, and we also have a research arm as well. I think I've, I think I've recalled everything. Mm. Okay, so a pretty diverse sort of operation there within the within We the are, and in fact, 40% of our services are provided in rural um, and regional Victoria. Okay. Okay. And number of staff? Uh, it changes, but it's around about 1,600. But as you'd expect, many of those are part-time, and you're looking at about 85% of those people are female. Aha. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. interesting. O- opposite gender yeah, mixed. Yeah, with 42 different languages spoken. So it's a very culturally diverse organisation. Yeah. How do you find leading a culturally diverse organisation like that? We put a lot of time into our diversity policy and how we approach diversity. Many of those people work as personal care workers in our residential services and our home care services. 
Um, we really do need to um, consistently think about how we engage those people, particularly when we're looking at attracting them into the workforce, training them, um, you know, inducting people, providing ongoing training. Our communication is really important, thinking about how we tell them the information they need to know. Um, and, um, and and obviously understanding the cultures they come from too. It's just, you know, for example, um, the end-of-life legislation um, that was recently released in Victoria, we need to think through how we might implement that within Benetas because people from different cultures will have different viewpoints about what they should do or shouldn't do, not just from different cultures, but also for who they come from different religions or no religion. So um, it's it's quite complicated, but I think it adds to the richness, definitely adds to the richness of our, of our company. Hmm. So you're able to share with the listeners a bit of an interesting fact about Benetess that they may not know. Um, well, I think I'd like people to know that Benetess, as I said, is 71 years old. And it was actually started at round about the same time as the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, who was my employee in my last job, um, in the 1940, late 1940s. Because at that time, we come out of a recession, um, but there was a, quite a lot of um, unemployment and housing. There was a housing crisis in Victoria, particularly in the slums, in the inner city. And... Benetas was started by the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne because those volunteers saw that there was a need for affordable housing for older people. And in that time, it wasn't just people who were, who were frail um, or had a whole lot of medical or chronic conditions because normally those people didn't live very long. These were people who would be um, you know, in their early 70s, mid-70s, without really many medical conditions but who just had insecure housing because there wasn't enough housing and they hadn't been able to work or they hadn't saved enough money and there wasn't enough rental properties so there was a housing crisis and so Benitez was formed uh, first and foremost to provide affordable housing so some of these people when I see when I look back at the archives and I look at pictures of these people who were our very first residents they are actually um, quite um, uh, ambulant, you know, they were able to. They were, they were quite active, <laughs> but they just didn't have um, anywhere to live. And of course, government in those days didn't provide any housing. There wasn't a ministry of housing. There wasn't any social housing funding. So of course, over time, that changed, and these people became frailer. So yep, that was our roots. All right. So I'd like to take you back. Oh, here we go. All the way back to your start of your leadership journey. And are we able to share with the listeners your the very first significant leadership role that you had? So I started my life in nursing. So I went from general nursing to working with people who had an intellectual disability. That was that was a tough area. And I worked at what's well, it's not there anymore, but St Nicholas Hospital, which used to be in Pelham Street in Carlton. Okay. Um, trendy Carlton wasn't so trendy then. These people, these they were children, and they were the most disabled children in Victoria. They not only had intellectual disability, but they had physical disabilities. They had sensory disabilities. They had lots of disabilities. And um, these, um, uh, it was decided um, that um, 
was during the, the very start of the closing of the institutions. And I found myself, I still to this day start trying to think about how this happened, but I found myself, what they were doing was closing the institutions, closing this institution and putting these people into the community, into group homes, and those group homes are still in existence today. Um, they were later run by state government and now they've been moved out to run by the private sector under NDIS. But these people were moved to the community, staff were to be moved, moved, the institution was to be closed. And you can imagine during that time there would be a lot of interest from the union. For some reason, I was actually elected as the sub-branch official <laughs> and I was like, you know, 20, 20, I would have been like 23. Or, no, I wasn't, I wasn't even that old. I was, I was in my early 20s anyhow. And I, and I um, it was it was tough. So I actually learned, um, and in those days there weren't very many women in the union movement. Um, there was very few women in the, in the union movement, and it was one of the health services unions that's changed its name now. Um, but that was a really good learning curve for me because what did I learn? I was working as uh, an assistant charge nurse, um, but I realized that what did I learn from that was that very few people wanted to take the risk of actually doing that. You could say I was stupid and I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into. Yes, that would be right. But I was willing to have a go and people were were actually standing behind me and they said, we think you've got the capacity to do this. So there's an enormous amount of trust in that. It really is. It's a huge trust. And the program, the place was closed and there were a few issues, but there was, no, there was no disasters. I later was involved in another closure and there were bigger issues with that one. Um, so that was my first time. It was in, you know, in a leadership role. So it was not so much being that I was an assistant charge nurse, but I was actually, because in those days, there were very few people. You, you, you could end up being in charge of a whole lot of staff without actually finishing your qualification because there weren't enough people who had qualifications. So you could find yourself very young, semi-trained, with a whole lot of much older people that you were leading. And many of them, they went down to the wharfs and picked them up from the wharfs so they actually didn't speak English. <laughs> I'm quite old. <laughs> 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 but I know I'm saying this because people look at me and go, "What are you talking about?" It's true they mm. could not get, you know, they could not get people, you know, because the immigration went on for a long time, yeah. and these people were trained in other areas. So, so that was a that was my first foray into leadership. Wow, and not only a challenging leadership role, but that particular type of role dealing with the disabilities, both physical and intellectual, must have been very, very challenging. Absolutely. It's very sad. When I think about all that, and I've worked in just about every human services area, I still think working with people with disabilities is probably, and especially working with younger children, I, I that, that area probably touched me the most. Mm. Yeah. Do you think it was during that particular role that you sort of, and I know you're quite young, that you thought this leadership thing is for me or was it a later date? No, I actually, that was a good example where I thought, well, these people were willing to give me a go and I found that I had I had the capacity to um, instill 
confidence in people and to put up a, a plan, a proposal to be able to influence people and, and carry a lot of it through, not all of it, be able to smooth things behind the scenes and provide leadership. And, you know, there was conflict, not a lot, but there was some conflict. Um, and not everybody was happy with clearly with what was happening or even me being the person out there. Um, I didn't once feel that people thought I was too young to do it. I'm sure people, I'm sure some people did. But anyhow, um, it certainly made me think maybe I can do this. And that's, that's how I found all my leadership journeys actually is that you just, you can't, you just try one more thing and you get yourself out of that comfort zone and then you look back and you reflect on it and you say, actually, what did I learn there? So there's this whole journey of um, pushing yourself out there, identifying what it is that you are uncomfortable about dealing with that and then after working through how you're going to get through that giving yourself a lot of self-talk on the way and a lot of planning and support and a whole lot of stuff but when it's finished doing your debrief all to yourself and to others but let's say you're talking to yourself and say actually that that went okay i can do i can do that and i can do something more so it is about not getting getting out of your comfort zone not staying comfortable because the minute you get comfortable i think that's and, and But that's also about some people getting their comfort zone and some people get promoted far above what they should be. Yeah. So that is about why, you know, that's about your insight into knowing, I think this is my limit. Mm. Uh, and that's where, of course, some people unravel themselves a bit because they don't know what their limits are. Well, that's the, uh, is, is it the Peter principle? People are promoted to their highest level of incompetence? Or? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, you know, that is about getting feedback from a lot of people and mm. not just relying on your own. I want to have that job. I, I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to be a CEO ever, ever. I never, it, it all happened very gradually. Okay. Um, yep. Okay. So how long were you in that role? Which role are we talking about? The first one. Mm, the place closed um, and I think I might have moved out. Um, I think I was in that role for about three years and then that was it. The place closed and I actually went to work for the government in as a community nurse and so it was a different I yeah quite a different role okay so you've had your your first taste of leadership what was sort of the another significant role you think you moved into before the one you're currently in now um oh, I've had lots of different management roles I've done all sorts of I've my history of my career is that I've tended to choose roles that we're not, I call it, country club type leadership roles where you just okay. main, what, what I mean by that is you just you just smoothing the waters, maintaining maintaining the status quo, keeping everybody happy. I tend to like roles where you are really making some changes, and so probably uh, I've, so a lot of my roles are about change. So I um, moved when everybody else was jumping out of local government. I jumped in at the time of when Jeff Kennett was Premier and services were being... So I told you I was old. Um, <laughs> services were being tendered out. There was a compulsory of competitive tendering. And I was working in the human services area and, of course, a lot of, because a lot of the budgets in local government were um, spent on human services, family, children services, aged care, you know, um, those sorts of services. Um, 
I led a, I led a large team um, and we, a lot of our services were being contested um, and that was a completely new culture change. So you not only did were two councils brought together um, and a lot of people were getting redundancies and leaving, um, they were also recruiting at that time, the budget was in, there were issues with the budgets. I mean, this is Victoria-wide and you had to implement this new policy approach and I think that was... The, you know, the business rules hadn't been there before. I think there was some really clear benefits for the community about more responsive, more customer-focused um, councils because councils always get a, a kick in the pants for, you know, um, they should be more than rates, roads and rubbish and they're not responsive enough and where do my, where do, where do my rates go, you know? I've, I've done that before. Um, but, but, it was all, but it was very political because, of course, you had commissioners in, not, not um, councillors very political, very different level of government because I'd only worked at state government and then I worked in local government and that was very, very different because they are very, you know, very much close to the people but there's a lot of, there's a lot of involvement with community groups, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, it's, it's I think it's, it, well, it is very political. Hmm. Um, Do you think you found it easier to move into that role because you'd had a taste of leadership in the other role? Absolutely. I'd worked for state government in between that, so that was like a, that was, you know, um, I'd worked for state government for quite a few years. I think working for state government certainly helped me. And I have actually think that working for state and local government has equipped me for then going in and working in the not-for-profit sector or the the third sector, as we, as we call it, I think. It's really good to be able to look at both sides of the story, to be able to look and say, well, this is why the bureaucrats might be saying this. I I did have an interesting five and a half years. as a very, My first CEO role was actually when I was 25, which was young, but it was a disability agency that provided... Um, accommodation, group homes, respite services and um, uh, education and training to families who had a who had a child with um, a disability and that was like a but it was like an eight million dollar enterprise it wasn't very big Um, and that was very interesting at that age I think that was also foundational for myself so Yes, I, I, I definitely think I've had lots of opportunities and I think sometimes people don't take them. I haven't taken all of them. One, I was actually talking to one of my staff this morning who's looking at his career options and I said to him that um, you quite often you, you people want to go up the greasy pole but the point is is that you get up the greasy pole and you can get up there really early and look around and go, now what do I do? Where do I go? Sometimes it's easier to, it, it's actually better for you, your growth, to go have the breadth. And sometimes that means you're not going to get the pay increases. But it means that you you expand your, your skill set. So you make sure that you've actually got a critical mass of skills in a range of areas. And then you can move up. You're far, you're far, um, far more grounded. But not everybody wants to do that because, and I think that sometimes... I would suggest that if your motivation is for status and for money, they are not going to probably serve you well as you as you if you you know if you wish to progress. Some people would disagree with me, yeah. but I think that you know peaking too early is not a good thing. Yeah. 
taking your time, getting a lay of the land, getting some, I think, experience is often underspoken about. I think we quite often think, oh, you, know, you just need to get there. But if yeah. I think about my leadership roles, if I had my time over again, and most leaders I speak to say, if I had my time over again, <laughs> they would do things differently. Yeah. Yes, I think um, one, I... I do a succession plan for my direct reports and I give it to the board every year. And one of the things I write on the back of the report is I talk about, and this is just my, it's my, my words, my view, but you, know, you can teach people, they've got all the technical skills, they pick up a whole lot of leadership management skills, but there's a, about five areas that I think there are things that MBAs and other courses, Harvard and Oxford, whatever, cannot teach. And these are things around the political savvy. Um, there are some of the resilient skills. You know, that's a big area at a range of levels, not just at senior management. Those sorts of skills, um, and there's a, there's a few others. You just can't teach those skills. And those skills, you know, some of the judgment skills that people perhaps don't have, they can't see, they're blind, they can't see that they are perhaps only... Um, looking at their own area, they're not looking at an enterprise approach. That's one of the areas I find that general managers sometimes have real problems with. They, they, forget, they can be quite biased about their own teams, but they don't take an enterprise view and they um, may have made a decision that it actually affects the whole enterprise. It makes us, and it, but it makes it look like they're favouring my particular part. It's, it's really hard. Um, but their judgment calls that not everyone um, are, are good at um, making, and they don't teach those. Those, you know, when I did my course at London School of Business, you know, we didn't do a section on, you know, how to use good judgment 101. Did so? Just talking on that for a minute, because succession planning sort of red hot at the moment in a lot of the the work we do, and we're finding yeah. the organisations that we talk to. All say, yes, we believe in it, we want it, we agree with it. And when I ask them, you know, what's the state of your succession planning? You know, how far along are you? How advanced are you? And I'm finding that even some organisations are quite scarily deficient in their succession planning. So with yours, and you're talking about these key skills that you believe these these GMs need to develop and nurture... Do you deliberately try to put in some sort of approach from you to them in terms of trying to encourage them and foster them at those particular skills? Is it a big, big focus for you personally? It's not a big, big focus, but it's part of their... So we, we cascade it up and down the organisation. So I've talked about my direct reports, but it actually goes down to the next level and the next level in the business because we're looking, so we have a workforce plan and we're looking at if this is our five-year strategic plan, what are the skill sets we need? Do we have enough of them? And that's number one, which is a bit different to succession planning, I know that. But the second thing is um, we look at uh, what are the key positions in, in, in your organisation, in the organisation, and... Who have we got that can fill those positions? And we identify people. There's a number of models that the HR professionals use, but we can identify whether or not someone's at level, um, that their talent to be promoted, or there's somebody that we need to put some work into. And then that feeds into their learning and development plan. 
I do it a little bit differently for my direct reports, but it does actually talk about who is aspirational to be a CEO, who isn't, who is um, and, and how they're tracking. It talks about whether or not they're interested in an acting opportunity because, you know, I've just been away on leave and I've had two GMs, one take two weeks and the other take two weeks, and that's fantastic because they've still got their, their normal run of everything during the day. Um, so, and then I talk about those that I, I mean, those that I feel would be suitable, and then that forms part of their learning and development plan. Now, you asked me whether or not I'd actively promote that. I do via their learning and development plan, which is part of their performance review, and we can talk about it every time we meet. But at the end of the day, our, I'm, I'm a firm believer, and this is our approach for um, learning and development at Benitas, is that it's a partnership. Your learning and development's a partnership, so it's not my responsibility as your, your, direct, your, your manager to do these things for you. We have to join together, and you've got to do some of these things yourself. Because we've got scholarships, funding, you can do all sorts of things we can help you with and training. And if you don't want to get off your bottom, um, it ain't going to happen. And I think that's a good thing because let's face it, you know, nobody can make you go to go back to uni or to night class or to, you know. But we acknowledge in our uh, training and our learning that, you know, 70% of learning comes from practice on the job. Yeah, the 20, the 70, 70 20, 10 model. Yeah. So the 10% is only formal learning uh, and that's the adult learning model. So we're, you know, we, we, we practice that but, uh, but really is a partnership. I'm not, if I see you as a talent to be a CEO in the future or somewhere else in the business, and we work out a plan and you won't do the plan. It's not my plan. My board don't say to me, we'll do the plan for you, Sandra. I've got to do it myself. Um, and if you can't, and if you do it and we come back in six months' time and you've done nothing with it, it's like, who owns the problem? It's not my problem. Mm. Well, it might be my problem because it might show, it actually would show something else about your, your interest in your own development. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So fast forward to now. CEO of Benta, sixteen hundred staff. You're able to give some more context around how, what your role is, how you see it. It's changed. I've been here for ten years. Some people might say, "Gosh, that's a long time." But I, when I came in ten years ago, this organisation was in a lot of trouble. Okay. We'd had um, a very public falling out. It was um, we'd had four deaths due to suspected salmonella poisoning in one residential aged care facility. And every, we're, you know, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. It's a textbook case in terms of um, exec leaving, board leaving, um, board members leaving, public disgrace, you know, like on the news um, and difficulty in recruiting good staff, work cover going through the roof because of stress. So, you know, work cover premiums were big. And of course, that all impacted on the bottom line. So when I was, when I and I just, I'm just laying the scene because it, because um, there are some people that think you, you know, if you can't get something done in three years, you might as well just move on. Organisations this size take a long time to turn around. Um, so I was recruited to turn the business around from a financial perspective, from a cultural perspective, including the work cover, obviously premiums, but also to deal with the um, the coronal inquest, which was quite 
um, you know, quite quite um, complex really. And we went ahead and built um, rebuilt the organisation, and it's been a, a really good journey. But it's been a lot of work. I've had a quite a consistent GM team during that time. I mean, there were some changes. Uh, people have worked hard, they've done a great job, but government then come in and make changes, reforms, and so it's, it's, it is, it is tough. It's if I sat here and said that it was easy, it's tough, even before the Royal Commission, and we're really actively involved in that. But it's tough because there's not enough funding in the sector, and that impacts on the quality of who you can employ. The reputation, nobody, I mean, it's just a grudge purchase. Nobody wants to hear about aged care. And yet we're more than aged care. We do a whole range of other services. So I think in terms of my role has changed in that I've, in the early days, I was very operational. I rolled up my sleeves. I had to get in there. I couldn't, there'd be no point in me um, appointing a chief operating officer and for me to just manage from a distance you really had to get down and ask the questions why 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 are we spending so much money on agency why is this taking so long etc etc so I am, am now far more in the strategic however every now and again we do dip down there are things that are just not right and there's obviously some at the moment as usual and so you do need to be able to helicopter and then and then zoom in on things that you might want to spend more time on. So people here know that if I have an interest in something, it's either because I really do have an interest in something or uh, I want to put the, to- the torch under somebody's bottom. <laughs> you know, so an area that where people are not paying attention, they're yeah. not, then there's not attention to detail, yeah. they've let things... You know, they're not following their project work plan. So I think um, that that is my my role. I, obviously, I'm managing the board um, and working closely with the board as the, as the sort of link between the board and the executive team. It's really important that the executive team understand the functions of the board because they actually, it's, we have a really good, strong relationship with the board. The board are very respectful and the GMs each have opportunities and some come every month, so it's not me talking head because how can I represent the vast array of what we do properly? Um, but we, we've been really strict. We have followed through on two complete strategic plans and we've achieved... Um, about 90 and 95% respectively of our strategic plan. We're into a new one now, just started a new one now for five years. And I, we think that's a pretty good result because most people have strategic plans if they have them, but they don't, they don't, they don't follow through on them. We have a very strict regime with governance committees and it's a very, and it's a really spread across the business. Um, general manager being the, the, the chairperson, but we have a, a project management office and good good approach to those sorts of things, but things go wrong. Um, I, th- I think also my role is also I, when I first came here, people were very internally focused. So I was very clear about saying, let's get the foundations almost right, let's open up the blinds and let's look outside because I've always had a, a very much an open I've had an external view and I've always, I do respect the fact that people, I do feel strongly that people have to contribute to the community and to their peak bodies and to other groups, not just, you know, head down, this is just about us, sharing with other people, 
um, sharing with other businesses. We, um, I started a research and advocacy part of our business, which was new when I came. That's growing from strength to strength. We do get money from the federal government to do a whole lot of pieces of work, like the frailty screening, for example. And we like to share what we do with others. So that's part of why we do it, to inform government policy, but also to inform practice. And it's not much point doing it if you don't share it. And I know we're in a competitive environment in aged care, but seriously, you know, I don't think there's any problem with sharing it. So I, um, I, I see my role also is to do a lot of the advocacy, obviously with the politicians, but I do involve my, and with the government, but I do involve my GMs in that. And that's, that's a learning experience for them. Some like it more than others and the ones that like it get to do it more often. I wouldn't force it on them. So, um, yeah, I, I think also there is a very strong role for CEOs to pace set in terms of what are the priorities, but where you put, you know, what areas do you fasten the pace on, what areas do you perhaps pull back a bit, and that obviously means where you put the resources. Um, and obviously the culture to set the tone. So I think... I think we, we have a very good culture here and I think and I and, and obviously it comes from the board down through myself and my exec team. I think that's really important. I think um, you know, as we know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So I think yeah, I I very much believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you see yourself as a the sort of leader that is attracted to a business that needs to undertake significant change or is dealing with change. Ten years in to Bantas, mm. is that change coming from within or are you, are you seeing or getting that change need fulfilled from all the changes in policy, government, economy, worldview? Where's that change mm, coming that's from? That's a good question. Well, it's interesting because both of the commissioners who are the commissioners for the Royal Commission they have been quite scathing in saying to the industry there's no there's little leadership we're really calling out for leadership for ideas about we're getting to the stage where we've heard all the good the bad and the ugly we want to hear from the leaders in the industry as to what you want the future to look like and i think that and and also they've they've said and stop blaming government stop saying that you don't have enough funding and i think and I've got a response to that in terms of what we're going to do, read the Royal Commission. I've got a really good idea about, about that. So, and, and, and it's a positive one. It's, it's a positive one. Um, I think that it's, it's quite complicated because you've got the increasing um, longevity of older people, increasing frailty, more older people coming into the, you know, more people ageing. But with that comes, we've actually got family members becoming more involved in increasing expectations. I think that would have come regardless of government making, you know, moving towards consumer-directed care. But I definitely think government policy direction, which we've had a say in. I mean, you know, they've consulted. We, we haven't been passive recipients. of. It hasn't just happened overnight. That has definitely had an impact. I mean, home care, there are lots of challenges in home care. I would be concerned. I mean, I know there's some money in the last budget to, to do a trial of contributory care and residential care, but there are so many issues in home care at the moment. I think they need to fix up that first. Um, I always like to be the 
the art, the architect of my own destiny and not have people. <laughs> so I'd rather be at the there's most in most instances I'd rather be at the front shaping. Um, which is why I, I'm, I'm really um, delighted and honoured to be on the um, Aged Care Workforce Council, which people haven't heard a lot about because they we're about to, we we are yet to announce ourselves. But we're actually the very small council made up of mainly providers um, and some union and provide and um, and consumers who are charged with the responsibility of implementing the all the, all the recommendations, the 14 recommendations from the um, John Polaire's report, A Matter of Care, which is the aged care workforce report that was done two years ago. Um, so that's my commitment to because that's not just about workforce, it actually, it's got tentacles that goes into a whole range of other areas, but given that staff workforce is 70% of our budget and our staff are everything. So that's a big piece of work. So I, I would like to see, I, I actually think that it's multifaceted in terms of where the impacts have come from, where the changes, but I, I don't want to sit around waiting for the Royal Commission. I, I want to get moving. I find that I found, I found like folk amongst other providers who we can work with, but I think there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of, Got to use the right term. People are weighed down in the industry by what's going on at the moment. Yeah. And I think I've had a number of people say to me, "How do you stay positive?" And uh, and these are CEOs who are very skilled. And how do you keep going? I I've got to be positive to my staff. I mean, it's another role of a CEO. I think it's not right to be positive. You've got to be honest, but have a way forward. Speak the truth how you see it, but come up with a way forward and look at the good things yeah. that are happening because it's really easy to forget all the good things that we have done. Yeah. So I'm, I'm keen to explore uh, some of your more general views on leadership because we've got a bit more yep. of a sense about you now as, as a leader. So what's the biggest leadership myth that you've come across during your, your, your time? Uh, I think it's that one about... Um, that to be a good leader, you have to be outgoing. You have to be, you know, an outgoing person, um, an extrovert. And my comment to that is, no, that's not true because there are plenty of extroverts who are not very good leaders. I think someone who's more of a, has a tendency towards introversion is someone who... Um, can make a very good leader because they can be very thoughtful, introspective, very um, a good listener and do, does a lot of stuff behind the scenes. An external person can do that too, do a lot of work behind the scenes. A lot of my work that I do is behind the scenes. A lot of um, um, I, someone who wanted to be a CEO one day said, I couldn't do your job because I don't like working behind, I don't like doing all the small talk behind the scenes, not realising that that's actually quite often what gets the result. It's not about talking to people in a, in a room and saying, you'll do that and can you do that. That's, um, But sometimes the only thing is the challenge for someone like that might be that you do find yourself quite often in situations where you have to get out of your comfort zone and either talk to a room of people you don't know all work the room and I think that's where I've worked with intro, with introverted people to say well this is what you do 
you're going to be uncomfortable but that's like what I talked about before about being uncomfortable it doesn't mean you can't it's not a um, it's not a do or die thing for leadership but I think that will be a myth that I think is, is something which I think needs to be tossed out in the rubbish okay. <laughs> and how do you describe yourself as a leader my style has changed a little bit over time um, but I um, well, I'm obviously an outgoing person I actually used to be really extrovert extroverted but I've actually toned down a bit (laughs) I have you have to believe me but I tend to be very situational so I I change my my style depending on what this scenario is who I'm talking to I always consciously talk think to myself okay who are these people what are they after what do they want what's the best way to approach them but I'm a very um I'm a very optimistic person who Obviously, well, not obviously, but I, I like to believe that people do the right thing. Um, but I also look for evidence. I've learned from bitter experience that you do need to get, you know, be shown evidence that somebody has heard what you've said they're, and they're going to do it or they've done it. Um, I like to be very clear about this is where we're going, this is why we're doing it, this is where we're heading. And the person who you, or people that you're talking to know how they can contribute so where can they where can they put their hat um i'm i'm always very forward thinking i'm i'm very far one of one of the things i've had to adapt a bit is i do tend to be i i use the word pace setter before but i do tend to be a pace setter and so you've got to you know understand that not everybody comes at your pace so there is some modification of behavior because you want you do want diversity um, you do want diversity. You don't want everybody who looks the same and says the same. So there's so building a team that's diverse is is important. But having said that, I don't um, I don't tolerate. You know, I, I I really do I do really require people to be accountable and to perform. And if they don't perform, they know they haven't performed. So. Um, when I talk to the team, the leadership team, we have a leadership group meeting every three months or so. I always, we always have a topic, a theme, and whatever. But I always try and think about what's going on in the environment at the moment, and what would I like to leave them as a message. What's the you know? Um, but um, but I but I am I do think I'm an authentic leader, so I'm actually quite comfortable with sharing with people what you know when where I think I've done really well and where I think I I haven't and I think and I and sharing that you know one of those characteristics of authentic leadership is actually sharing um, why you've made decisions where you've got where you think you've gone wrong how you think you can do better so I'm I suppose in summing up I I I manage through relationships not through you know authority power um, those sorts of things I don't have um, but I'm quite I won't say comfortable, but I, I, and this is an area I think with experience, I've got much, much, much better at it. You know, if you're not performing, I have a particular approach which I will change. I don't expect all my direct reports I manage in a very different way because it's about their personalities and because I said I've managed through by relationships. But you would be very clear. You would know if you were doing really well. You'd know where you needed to make some changes and you would also know if you weren't doing well on your own way out. Mm. Yeah. 
I'm always curious if uh, about leaders and the types of models or frameworks or tools that they're particularly partial to. Are there any that have resonated with you over your time that you sort of you your go-to? Well, you know, when I did my MBA years ago, we had I had a book of them, yeah. and I and I would actually use them, and I, you know, and I have used them, and there's a few I've used, you know, I've used over time. Um, if I understand what the concept is and why you use them, so. But I guess for me, I still think that. Um, that focusing on the number of times I've said to people, you know, who look like they've heard it for the first time, which always amuses me, is, you know, you know, strategy, structure, staff. Because if you think it's logical, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah, I, I think that's, um, but, you know, I've got a whole, whole book of them. But no, I think I'm always looking for new models. We use um, we used we used the balanced scorecard for our um, for our structure reporting to the board, but I modified it because I do that sort of thing where I added. I never liked that model. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it enough to use it, but there wasn't any in the four areas. There wasn't an area that actually was the overall strategic directions of the business. So mm-hmm. I, I added. It. So I've got five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So probably that that would be the other one that I that stands that stood the test of time. Actually, we've had it. I introduced it when I first came here, and it's still here, and okay. people like it, and the board like it. So great. So right now, because we're recording this podcast in early July, what's what's your biggest leadership challenge that you can see in the immediate future? I've got some challenges around some of my middle management and looking at in a particular program and making them understand their accountability. That is probably my biggest. And, you know, when, you know, it's disappointing when you've got everything lined up, you've got all sorts of tools, you've trained people up and people know there's expectations about they should know what they have to do and they just need to check things every day it's all been set up and then they don't do it and uh and then you dig and you dig and you find out that why they're not doing this because the systems have failed because people have left or they're on sick leave and and the systems were not set up well enough so that those people, new people coming on, whether they be temporary or permanent, don't get trained in those areas, and and have you can't blame them. They haven't got a clue that that's what they're meant to do, and you find you thought that the orientation induction program was was you know neatly um, there's a book and it was all you know embedded, you know it hadn't been impl- nobody's looked at it, you know. So it's that sort of that sort of stuff's really frustrating. You just want to you know explode, um, and nobody's taking. Nobody's taking responsibility and nobody's shown any accountability or initiative that, that, that you know, they should have done that. And that's really frustrating, you know, I think. Um, so there's some of my challenges at the moment, but they're all achievable because, you know, we've got, if you get the right culture and the right, I, these are things that are just technical things. Yeah. Um, but it's frustrating. So I'd like to explore this thing that I've been calling you know, your area of leadership passion. So what is it about 
what, what, what's that part of leadership that really floats your boat? The one that just gets you up every morning and you get you so excited? Well, I one of the things is I love to be able to see people um, when they've really just, when the light goes on and they've just got it, you know, and sometimes, particularly if it's someone who you wouldn't have thought would have, <laughs> <laughs> which probably could say something more about you and your judgment, actually, um, but who absolutely gets it. And, you know, you you know you get presented with a, we're going to do this, and you can either say, well, that's a lot of crap and I'm not going to do that for these reasons, I think it's wrong, or you can go, yeah, I'm going to give it a go, you know, I'm going to give it a go, and I think it's good for the enterprise. And I think people that are on that trajectory who are willing to give it a go and and will say I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do that so people who put their hand up for uh, assignments that you wouldn't that you would never have thought that they would have obviously with support and all that sort of stuff I think and then you see them grow and develop and like the journey that I talked about they've been brave enough to do that and then they they might have some bad experiences, but they have more good ones, and they keep on going. And I think that's um, that's really inspirational. People that um, who say, "Well, you know, I've always, I've never had a setback. I've never had, I've never, I've never not got a job I've gone for." Well, you know, hey, hey, princess, that might stop soon. You know, <laughs> because you know that's un, that's unrealistic. You can't, or you know. Um, I don't like doing things that make me feel uncomfortable or I don't like getting knockbacks or, you know, I don't I don't like doing X, Y, Z. So it's people that actually toss that, you know, challenge that. The people that won't take those challenges and are just not going to, they're going to stay there. And I hear those sort of things like, oh, well, you're going you're gonna to be in that box for quite some time, I think. Yeah. What does the, the future hold for you? So you mentioned your... Just starting your, your third strategic plan. So what else does the future hold for you? Well, I'm involved in quite a few external things. Okay. Um, and most of them are to do with the health, ageing, disability area. I, I'm, I'm on the board of Community Chefs, which is a fantastic organisation. Okay. Yeah. Who, that was set up by a lot of local governments to, you know, provide meals to people who are mainly older people but not people with a disability um, who you know so they focus on on food security and that's that's a community-based enterprise which is fantastic not really sure I mean I'm not my view is that I have lots of energy I've got lots and lots of energy and I think that the our third strategic plan focuses on it's very similar to the previous one with the key difference that the customer we put the customer at the center of what we do so that has actually impacted the whole of the plan Um, so I've got a a much tighter focus on the customer Um, but in terms of myself there's still a lot to be done here there's a whole lot of community like there's a whole lot of bills that we're doing where we're doing um, we call them continuing care communities. So where we've got retirement living, residential services, and we've got um, community care as well, and hopefully allied health. So there's some we acquired a, 
um, a service last year that has residential, but it's also got allied health and NDIS. So we're actually looking at there's some real opportunities for us there as to what we do there. But I'm I'm really interested in keeping up, if possible, my external involvement on a number of boards, um, like Anglican Care Australia and Community Chefs and on the Workforce Council. I think there's quite a lot of work to be done. Those things don't you those. The, those those challenges that some of those boards are looking at are not going to be um, solved overnight. Yeah. So I I think, but that's a bit about me looking internally and saying, well, um, am I am I still adding value, or do I you know do I need to move on? Do I need to do something else? Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm, I'd be hoping that if I'd missed that insight, that somebody would sort of tap me on the shoulder and say. <laughs> We have a coffee. We need to chat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think yeah. I think there's still quite a bit of there's still quite there's a lot of challenges, and I'm and I'm I feel like I'm I'm up for it. Okay. I think I think the way leaders uh, approach their own development changes as they number one get more experience under the belt, but number two climb a hierarchy of whatever organisation they're in. So. Your your CEO, the highest of the high in terms of a normal organisational structure. How do you continue your development as a leader, as a person? That's a good conversation to be having with me because next Friday I have my performance review with (laughs) with some of my board and I have a learning and development plan that I have devised. (laughs) So, you know, I went through the stage where I would... I've done a couple of... um, courses overseas etc and you know you've got to be really careful about what you choose because some of them are not I know my learning style and there's one particular style that doesn't suit me um, (laughs) and you know um, and but I think you've got to look broader than that because I think by the time you get to my level there's a lot of things that you need to refresh but it is about learning differently and thinking differently and exposing yourself to different areas I think, and that's why I've always liked to study with um, other people from other professions, like okay. not doing aged care, health, human service type qualification. Well, I have them, but not yeah. more senior um, because you do pick up and it's good to work in different industries So, um, or to listen to people from different industries. So, But that I think that's one of the reasons why it's good to be on for me, some of those, um, some of those other boards because it does expose me to other things. Like Anglicare Australia, because that's a really broad. Yeah. Um, I mean, they. I mean, we're quite narrow, but a lot of our members, they provide everything from you know financial counselling to housing, Indigenous services, you know, domestic violence, family children services, aged care, disability. You know, so listen to some of the issues that they have. Um, are quite different being on the community chefs board. Um, so. I'm not. I'm not one. I do go to conferences, particularly if I'm presenting. But I think you know you need to make sure you come away with a couple of take homes from a conference. I think sometimes that's more about networking. So I'm not one. I read a lot. Writing is a good thing. I think we were talking before about that. I mean, I think forcing yourself to look at a topic that interests you and write a lot of what I get published, I actually write myself. I do give it to one of my um, communication people to tidy up but actually it's my it's my ideas it's my writing um, and I do it myself I think that's a good discipline 
I think that's one of the problems with being a CEO, especially of a large company. You sometimes you actually can get skilled. You know, you don't write anything. <laughs> I, 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 I still know I can do that because occasionally when I don't get what I want in the right time, I'll just go, oh, for goodness sake, which might not be good good management, but it's good. For, I, I can, I, I just do it. Yeah. And the biggest challenge facing Benetas as a whole in the coming years? Oh, the financial domain we find ourselves in is, is not good. I mean, we've got a big, we've got a big balance sheet, but, um, but the industry, we know from the Stuart Brown benchmarking that 45% of companies are not making a profit. Mm. That is bad. It's getting worse. We're not in that group, but that's a lot. And they're, and they're mainly smaller ones, smaller organisations, and a lot of them are rural and regional. Government are aware of it. Um, we, would just, we would just adjust our strategic plan implementation, and there's still a lot of things, a lot of levers we can pull, but... Recruiting and retaining the best staff is really, really also a challenge. So, um, and whether or not government will do anything, we don't know. But certainly, if you've been following the Royal Commission, you would know that that lack of funding is a huge issue. Yeah. Mm. Are there any leaders that you inspire you or you look up to? I prefer... I tend not to want to names here but I can talk about the characteristics that I really like I like people who have gone against all odds to you know um, achieve something you know including people that are that have come from you know that have been refugees asylum seekers whatever and have achieved amazing things um, <laughs> And then, you know, you, you, you think, why can that person do that when this person's had all the, aff- all the benefits of an affluent education and, the, and they, you know, and there's lots and lots of complicated ways of answering that. But people that have overcome adversity um, to, get where they, to get where they are, people that have been... I always... There's so many people that are unsung heroes that are just the quiet people... And we have them, you know, we have plenty of them, our staff. They just get in there, do their stuff, and they would die. They don't want you to know what they do. They just want to, this is, and if you single them out, they're embarrassed and then this is my job. And But, you know, um, I, I do think most people like to be recognised. So, but leaders on the world stage, I actually follow, I find it fascinating. I love following leaders and what they say and how they make their decisions and I always think what would I do you know what would I do if I was Theresa May in Brexit Mm. Um, you know what would I what would I do if I was Donald Trump please do me a favour but you know seriously I really do think about that and I think about what would I do if I was this one and that one and um, it's of course you know get yourself in that situation it's different but I think there does seem to be um People who are good communicators who can, you know, who can bring together a lot of disparate people who've got different views. You know, I think Julia Gillard did a really good job of bringing together what was seen as a hodgepodge of um, crossbenchers. Um, I'm not sure if the current government's going to have... Well, I don't think they've got such challenges in crossbenchers, but last, last parliament they did. 
um, I think that's a real skill because I think that's about giving up. That's about giving up some of what you might want, you know, leaving some of your ego at the door. Yeah. Uh, and there's still, there's a lot of that around. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You look pretty certain about that. Oh, yes. Well, I, I, yeah. I don't normally talk about politics on the no, podcast, no, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I think we're in for some interesting times ahead. So if people are interested in finding out more about you and Benitez, where should they go? Well, um, if it's about Benitez, it's our website, which is obviously um, benitez.com.au. Um, is it .org? No, I can't remember. Anyhow, if, if you put Benitez, B-E-N-E-T-S, into the search engine, it'll come up. We have a, a fantastic new website, and hopefully we'll have a, a customer portal there soon. It'll make it easy for our customers. If people want to find out about me, well, whatever I decide to <laughs> disclose on LinkedIn, I, I suspect, yes. Okay. Uh, any last words on leadership? I'd, I, I would just like your listeners to think about, just to remind people that leadership can come from anyone. So it's not just about, I think once again, people generally think, well, it's the person who's the head of the organisation. No, there are many, many people that provide leadership in all sorts of, in all sorts of areas. And I think... I've just been away overseas and I had some, and I make some notes, there were some amazing stories of people who, when things went wrong, just just showed amazing leadership and they were in very junior positions in their company and I thought, I love people like that in my company because they showed initiative and they just saw what needed to be done and they did it and other people followed them. So I think, you know, it's not about the CEO or the leader of the organisation, it's a, it's a role for everybody. And I think that's something we forget. On that note, Sandra, thank you so much for being part of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. My pleasure. Well, that wraps up episode 84 of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. Another great business leader episode for you. I'd like to encourage you, head on over to the Synergy Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to interview or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver too. If you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review. It really does help us build awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great author episode for you where I speak with Tony Homewood, author of Best Behaviour, empowering managers and HR leaders to coach and align employee behaviours to supercharge growth. It's another author interview. Until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening.